Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. As the year draws to a close, we often find ourselves evaluating the results of this year's harvest and reflecting on the systems and practices we've adopted to improve soil health. Some of our guests have shared with us that they have changed their practices, not only for soil health and water quality, but also because of a health event in their lives that prompted an examination of their current systems. Today, we're bringing you a medley of guests who explore the human health, soil health connection. We've picked out some great highlights with Seth Watkins, a farmer and inaugural Iowa Leopold Conservation Award recipient in 2022. Anthony Corsaro, the founder and managing director of Outlaw Ventures, working on building a better food system for tomorrow. Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, a human physiologist studying the effects of food and physical activity on human health. And Aaron Martin, gerontologist and founder of Conscious Aging Solutions. Let's listen in as Mon introduces the soil, plant, animal, and human health connection. We've talked a lot about the microbiome and um, the soil microbiome and the soil rhizosphere, the, the, the uh, microbes that associate with the root surface of the plant. And there's been a lot of, of talk lately about human health and what the gut microbiome and all this connection. And the reality is is there's a lot of of, uh, good science and studies that are coming forward that shows there's a a deep connection between soil health to plant health to animal health to human health. And it's really interesting. So farmers, we are here on the front lines of human health. And, And that's just really, really exciting. And now on to our guests. We start today with Seth Watkins, a farmer from Clorinda, Iowa. We asked him to talk about his passion for stewarding his land and where he said what he really wanted was clean water, healthy soils, and happy cows. You'll quickly hear that Seth wants to share what he's learned on his journey from both his farm and his family's perspective. Here's Seth. Let's dive in a little bit with your with your TEDx talk now and um, tell us about your, your son and your daughter and, sure. and some of the, some of the challenges that yeah. they've gone through. Yeah. Um, our, our son Spencer was, uh, was born with a, a very rare syndrome called 49 XY. For some reason, he just kept replicating X chromosomes. And what that does is, uh, it causes cognitive and physical challenges. You know, Spencer's awesome. He, uh, he has very good receptive language, but he doesn't, you know, he's, he's not the best communicator. He struggles with words and the low muscle tone makes it hard for him to do certain things. But, you know, we, we try to overcome a lot of it and, you know, he's, he's awesome. To, and he lives with us. He's 20 now and, and going to be 21. And our plan is that, you know, we just bought a portable chicken coop so he can help me you know, sell eggs and things like that. Yeah. And, uh, but it, it also showed me, Honestly, it probably tries, and, and I want to say this the right way because I don't, you know, I don't know the challenges other people have, see, or, sorry, see, but through Spencer, I started to understand a little bit about what it must feel like to be in an underserved community. 
and and things that how important it is to simply listen to others and try to come up with long-term solutions instead of saying I've got all the answers. And uh, anyway, knowing knowing the challenges with Spence and we recognized them, my wife and I chose. This was about the time they'd actually mapped the human genome. My wife and I chose to have genetic testing to make sure it wasn't a heritable trait. And I'm talking like a cow farmer, and you know everyone said this isn't heritable. This just happens sometimes, and. And I said, you know, just in case, let's make sure. And, and we went through that and everything was fine. And uh, then we found out we were pregnant with our daughter and, and Tatum. I mean, we were just ecstatic to find this out. And then, uh, then our obstetrician gave us a diagnosis of what's called monoamniotic monochorionic twinning, which is pretty rare and something you really don't want to hear. And um, anyway, what that means is that both twins are in the same placenta um, there's no division, nothing to protect them. And um, again, it's a, it's a cause, some, something causes cells to divide and cause this kind of, this kind of a, a disruption. And anyway, we, we lost one twin during the pregnancy. And when Tatum was born, because of, she had what's called an emphalocele, where your, uh, in her case, her colon had actually come through her abdominal wall. It collapsed within the two umbilical cords you had, it had caused them to collapse. And that's one of the last places to, 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 to finish, um, for lack of better words. And uh, anyway, when she had been born, um, we had to do a C-section and because of the, because of them fallacial and Christy was, was recovering. It was pretty, pretty brutal. And I was meeting with the medical team in the NICU at Tatum and um, you know, medical people are, uh, have to be very objective and they have to be kind of analytical and, and that's important. And they were going through a file and they're looking and they're saying, you know, this just doesn't make sense. Um, you've had genetic testing, you've had, there's no family history on either side. We don't see anything in your background. These are so rare. These, these, these uh, birth defects are so rare. And, and the nurse just looked at me and she says, you know, where does your family get there? You get your water. And, and honestly, as a farmer, that, I, I've, you know, you learn to just not say anything sometimes, but truthfully, the question kind of upset me. It's like, you know, why are you picking on farmers again? What are we, why does everyone do this? And, but like anything, you know, I think I gave pause and, and thought about it and read about it and, and, and the birth defects my children deal with can be caused by things I use as a farmer. They can be caused by atrazine. Um, they, uh, we look into, you know, the, the, the verdict's still out on like glyphosate, which is a product I use, but the, the surfactants, the inert ingredients that I don't list, um, those can do some pretty wonky things, at least to reptiles and, and stuff like that. And, and even the nitrogen fertilizer we rely on is a suspected endocrine disruptor is what we're talking about. And through that, I guess I like the expression, be a seeker of the truth, you know, learn how do we do this? How do we manage it? Um, I started looking even closer at how I was farming, you know, what products do I really need? Are there better ways to do this? Are there ways I can do this without these products? I'm still not, again, I'm still not fully organic. You know, I've looked at people saying, if I've got a thistle, I'm probably going to spray it, but I'm not going to spray the whole pasture. Uh, I'm a livestock man. If I have a calf, that's got a a temperature and a fever, I'm going to pull it and I'm going to treat it. And I'm thankful that I can do that, but I'm not a fan of uh, putting animals in an environment that requires mass antibiotic treatment on a daily basis. That just doesn't, 
that lacks common sense. And, and we know that there are issues that will come from that. And I think that goes back to the communication part as farmers is I think we should uh, educate ourselves on the impact of tetracycline antibiotics, on the impact of certain products we use, and, and be pushing our universities and, and ourselves to figure out what do I have to have, what don't I need, and how do I continue to move on this path and be productive and not use them. But, um, you know, anyway, Tatum and Spencer, Tatum's a, a junior in, in high school. She's brilliant. I don't know where the brain's, you know, she, she's just so bright. She's taking a, a full load of college classes plus her high school classes. She wants to study medicine. Um, she's keeping me on my toes. Um, I'm kind of proud of her because she's figured out that she thinks she can get her LPN degree before she finishes high school. And she's picked a couple of really good liberal arts schools um, as her target that she wants to do her undergrad work at. And I thought, you know, I really like this approach of maybe working as a nurse on the weekend. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but say the liberal arts degree isn't as profitable. She's got the nursing and the things like that to fall back on and keep working through. But I completely believe in her. And I just, I've, uh, I've told her that, you know, you, where you want to go to college, I'm going to support hundred percent. We're going to figure it out. And it's just awesome watching her learn. And she is an incredible advocate for herself and for the conditions she deals with still from, you know, from them fallacial and the corrections for it and, uh, is pretty inspirational. So when I see Tatum and Spencer, I'm, uh, it, it makes it worthwhile when I'm, you know, on the road speaking to people about these things, or sometimes wonder if my neighbors are laughing at me because of the next project I'm trying and, you know, the ones that work are the ones that don't, you know, I'm, we're living our lives and, and doing our best to try to figure it out and, and seeing enough success that we really want to get the message out that this is something that can be done and it's worthy of research. It's worthy of investment and, and we know it's possible. Well, it's, it's an amazing, um, uh, story that, that you and your family have, have, um, um, been through and, and what you, what you've experienced and how you've turned that to a positive, really. I mean, looking at, uh, you know, people can get pretty, uh, overwhelmed by those kind of circumstances. And I appreciate what you and your wife have, have, um, come through that. And, and it appears to me are, are looking to help others understand what could be causing that and, and seek the truth. And, and um, when you do find the truth, uh, adjust accordingly. Right. Next, we hear from Anthony Corsaro, an entrepreneur, investor, and regenerative agriculture evangelist whose mission is to help heal our people and planet through ventures that inspire the production and consumption of healthy, nutrient-dense foods. Listen in as Anthony shares his own health journey. The autoimmune disease in 2020. Uh, mm -hmm share with us what you're comfortable sharing there. I, I, and, yeah. and how you determine that food has an impact on that. Yeah. Super comfortable sharing all of it, honestly. And I think, um, every time I do, I get at least one person that reach out that says I'm struggling with something similar. I really appreciate you sharing that. And, and can you help? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's important to share it. So I have a disease called hydronitis superativa. It's a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, you learned how to spell that. I mean, that, that <laughs> I was, put it hard. into Google every time, Monty, and then I just copy and paste it so I never have to learn how to spell it. You just hope that autocorrect works. <laughs> Normally it doesn't, you know. <laughs> um, okay, say that again slowly. <laughs> yeah, hydronitis superativa. It's called HS for short. That's easier, yes. 
Um, And it's a skin related condition. And for lack of a better way to explain it, you know, you basically get large acne boils, zits, lesions um, that are painful, uncomfortable, not good looking and in places you don't want to get them. I'll leave it at that. Um, (laughs) And basically (laughs) I started getting them around 14 um, in high school and you know, it, it bothered me and it was part of my life, but I had so much going on in high school and college between, you know, uh, social life and sports and uh, academics that it didn't take up a large part of my time. But I think as I entered adulthood, I just had a really strong intuitive feeling like, hey, this is not natural. This is not right. I This shouldn't be happening. How do I fix this? Um, and I explored every single hardcore Western medical dermatologist kind of route. I even went to the, the guru guy outside of Detroit. That's the leading dermatologist and, you know, kind of got a doomsday uh, diagnosis. He basically just said, Hey, you're kind of phase two out of three. There's nothing you can do this whole, like cleaning up your diet things, like not going to help you, but like, good luck. And kind of just patted me on the butt and sent me out the door. Um, But thankfully, you know, I found uh, functional medicine doctors and naturopathic medicine, Mm -hmm. and I found an awesome naturopath outside of Denver um, named Dr. Ashley Bisco at Attune Functional Medicine, and um, she changed my life, and she had done the work, her and her partner, and really invested in learning about HS and specifically helping people with HS, and you know, there were three, there were three big components I had to, I had to overcome. One was the food piece, one was a stress piece. And then the other, the other, the big unlock was a mold piece. I had a really, really bad mold toxicity issue where I'd had some mold exposure. I needed to remove myself from the exposure and then detox the mold. And so while I'm still very disciplined about diet, exercise, stress, et cetera, uh, and it has a huge part in it, you know, that, that mold piece was a huge unlock to just op- my overall kind of healing and vitality. Very, very interesting. So uh, same similar story with my wife where we worked with a naturopath there in Fresno and she had been on uh, my wife had seen her and such and actually mm-hmm. watched her on uh, the local TV talk about this blood test that can identify foods that mm-hmm. you're intolerant to. Mm-hmm. And she went to her naturopath and said, hey, why haven't you done this with me? Well, <laughs> OK, so um, but I think the biggest thing anybody listening to this can take away, and I bet you'll vouch for this is that you have, you are responsible for your health and you have mm-hmm. to take charge of that. And, and she mm-hmm. just searched everything everywhere. And, um, mm-hmm. with the premise of God didn't design my body to, uh, destroy itself internally. So something was happening to make that happen. So good for you. And so that's been life-changing and, and yeah. the food side of that has definitely piqued your interest in regenerative. Why? Yeah. I mean, I just, the more that I learn about it, the more impassioned I become and the more invigorated and inspired I become. And it was just one of those things that it's, it's totally caught me and it's captivated my attention and curiosity. And, um, you know, it hasn't been easy at at all times learning and working in the space. I think the space is still really underfunded and really nascent. And, you know, we have a lot of problems to solve like, like anyone does. Um, but it's been so fulfilling and so worthwhile. And I've just followed that, you know, I've just kind of got up every day and done my work. And when I've looked at all those bricks stacked up, it looks pretty good. So I feel good about it. 
The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now on to Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, a guest we had on early in the podcast, who is a nutrition scientist and metabolomics expert. Let's listen in as we learn about Dr. Van Vliet's important research. Dr. Van Vliet, we really appreciate you joining us today. The work you're doing and the fact that you're working with and alongside farmers and growers to conduct this research is really exciting. Can you tell us how you started down this journey? Absolutely. So I'm originally trained as a human nutrition scientist with an, uh, with an interest in, uh, in, uh, in human physiology, specifically uh, uh, muscle metabolism, but also whole body metabolism and uh, how the foods that we eat can, uh, can, can impact our health and, uh, and our muscle mass. And uh, a lot of my work was focused on, uh, on some of the secondary metabolites in, in the whole food matrix, uh, particularly in, in foods such as uh, uh, meat and milk and eggs, but also in, in plant proteins. And what I found in my work was an important role of these, these, what we sometimes call secondary metabolites, though I don't really like to call them secondary because it implies they're not important, and they, they certainly are. Um, I found a role for, for these bioactive compounds in, uh, in improving uh, uh, muscle mass, but also metabolic health. So then naturally I got interested in it. Now, what is the way that we can improve the, the presence of these bioactive compounds in foods. And that is obviously from the ground up through, through food production, agricultural production. And so as I further gone along in my career, I got interested in, in really making that connection between agriculture and human health, because much uh, similar to, to many of my colleagues uh, who study diseases of dietary origin that, uh, that are mostly traced in, in, in dietary roots, I particularly got interested in, uh, in, in rather than only treating uh, those diseases with, with pharmaceuticals, but rather try and actually preemptively uh, uh, address these diseases through the foods that we eat and how the, does the way that we produce food, how does that impact our health? And that's, that's how I got interested and, uh, and started to work together with farmers and agricultural scientists. And we're really starting to build up the line of work right now. That is awesome. I love to hear the silos coming down. And, uh, you know, too often we're forgetting that connection from the soil all the way through um, the human body. So that is incredible. So some of the origins of the work that you've done, you know, really we haven't been able to do this work until the recent, you know, probably 10 years, correct? Uh, what are some of the technologies that have come along that have enabled you to test for or quantify these secondary metabolites and, and the other work that you're doing? Is it is that true? Is it not until recent that we haven't been able to really identify some of these things? Uh, yeah, that's definitely some technological advancements in, uh, in mass spectrometry that, uh, that we use, uh, which uh, allows you to identify a large number of compounds. Uh, the applications I particularly use are sometimes called food metabolomics or nutritional metabolomics. Now, what metabolomics does, it, it looks at uh, expanded pools of nutrients. So, we tend to typically be focused on a uh, limited amount of nutrients. So there's uh, 150 nutrients that are routinely tracked in the USDA database, but only 13 of those appear routinely on nutrition labels. And those are the things that consumers often see, which is things like protein, uh, serigo vitamins and minerals, 
carbohydrates, fat, and then we may have a, a, a sort of a designation between saturated fat and, 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 and polyunsaturated fat, right? But what we use uh, in our metabolomics techniques, we really look at extended pools of nutrients because the, the dietary metabolome, or what's sometimes referred to as the human food dome, contains an estimated 70,000 unique metabolites. Um, and I would say that we're only scratching the surface. And I'm sure if there's more technological advancement, we, we start to get a, a bigger or a larger appreciation of, of the importance of various of these compounds. And, and many of these compounds, they're often underappreciated when we discuss nutrition and human health, but there is definitely a documentation and, and more and more literature coming out on, uh, on how these, these uh, uh, metabolites can, can impact human health. And that, that could be things like, uh, like phytochemicals, like polyphenols or terpenes, or also other uh, uh, non-protein amino acids, such as taurine or, or anserine, uh, cysteamine, which are common antioxidants found, uh, uh, for instance, exclusively in animal foods and, and, and not in plant-based foods, whereas there's many other phytochemicals found exclusively in plant foods but on animal foods so you mentioned you know some of the work that you want to do in the future what what is you know what what do you want to see in the next five ten years so work what what's kind of your roadmap for what you hope to focus on and 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 learn over the near future yeah so in the next three years what we're doing is uh, we're working with several uh, farmers and we're gonna uh, really try to find or or if there's if it is there or if there's an absence thereof, we're objectively testing that. But the the, the hypothesis of our study is that uh, if we have uh, that there's a, a connection between soil health, plant health, nutrient density of meat, and human health. So what we're doing is we're doing metabolomics on soil samples. We're overlaying that with the plant sample. We're overlaying that with the meat sample. We're overlaying that with the human plasma sample because you often hear. Uh, anecdotally, this connection of healthy soils equals healthy humans, but there has not been, uh, to my knowledge, any study done that has really looked at this in, in the, along the, the same continuum, because, and that's coming back to working in academic silos, which uh, is uh, uh, something that's happened in the past, is that you have maybe livestock scientists on, on one hand, or animal scientists, or, or ecologists on one hand, that there is indication to suggest that, hey, animals that create more nutrient-dense soils have more, maybe more vitamins and minerals in their meat. But then we have the human nutrition scientists on one hand that, that have worked on things, but virtually every study that has been done with grass-fed beef has not really linked that back to the way the animal was raised, right? So uh, it's just saying, oh, grass-fed beef and it was finished on that, but it's not really a good insight into uh, what was the soil health of, of, of uh, uh, what the animal, the pasture that the animal was raised on. What was the plant diversity and what uh, compounds did the plants contain? So we're really trying to overlay those, and that will be something that we work on in the next uh, several years. And then uh, one of the other things that uh, we're interested also in is, uh, there, there's many ways we can go with this, but multi-species livestock systems, right? And, and, integ and integrative crop livestock systems. If we integrate animals and crops, do we synergistically improve both the nutrient density of the animal foods and the crops that we are growing versus if we uh, stick the animals in a monoculture or have a monoculture operation with animals and a monoculture uh, operation with, uh, with crops. Well, if we combine them, our, at least the hypothesis is one of the, uh, the projects we hopefully uh, will we'll get funding for in the future is to really look at uh, diversified systems and how do these impact the nutrient density. And, and then also what many farmers do, uh, and, and you, it sounds like you have a multi-species operation, is that uh, 
yeah, you sort of rotate the animals amongst the, the uh, among the system. So uh, does that also have a synergistic effect? And obviously, one of the important things is you are producing probably more food per acre that way of stacking for various enterprises. So that is also something that uh, we're uh, we're looking at in the future. And uh, yeah, that could, I could probably do that my entire career. So he asked me a five to ten year roadmap. This could be this could turn into a thirty year roadmap, but we'll see. Well, it's answers we definitely need. And uh, I think uh, because as you discover these things, then farmers, by doing the right soil health practices, are going to be able to to quantify and, and create higher value that they can receive back uh, for, for the work that they've done. So uh, just just fascinating, all the connections. And we see it, and I'm glad you're taking it out of the anecdotal and, and putting it into the... Um, uh, scientifically observed so that that's fantastic glad glad to hear it how much fun is it i mean yeah it's, it's, it's a lot of fun having it's a blast a lot, yeah. doing what you're doing <laughs> yeah no it's always the, probably my favorite part is working with farmers because uh, i i uh, always learn i can learn a lot from farmers as a, as a scientist too because uh, uh some of these things that uh we observe in, in the lab uh, farmers sort of like, intuitively know these things a little bit but usually have uh and then at least are uh, sort of on the right direction already, right? And uh, and obviously we need to objectively uh, uh, test these things and, and and verify them. But you can definitely, from a farmer that observes their animals day in day out, observes their land day in day out, as as a scientist you can definitely learn from that too, uh, and uh, and and uh, help point, uh, yeah, sort of sort of the roadmap of your research in, in the right direction. Because someone jokingly told me is that. All you're doing is verifying our common sense. That's what a farmer told me. And I said, well, I mean, hopefully I'm also sometimes discovering something new and unique that you haven't thought of. But uh, uh, if, if that's my job, verifying common sense, then uh, I, I uh, will, will try to do so. And uh, hopefully, uh, well, we do find some interesting things that uh, maybe are unexpected to, to me and, uh, and, and the farmer. And uh, heck, who knows? I mean, uh, it, it will be very interesting to see what uh, shared metabolites are along along that uh, soil, plant, animal, human health continuum. So, yeah, that's going to be fascinating. That's going to be fascinating. Well, thank you for the incredible work. We appreciate everything that you're doing and uh, helping us to know what the right thing is to do. And and I've always said, if you tell a farmer uh, what the right thing is to do, they will inherently want to do that. So. Um, we appreciate all that you're doing to quantify and verify these things to, to help really shift how agriculture is done in the United States. So looking forward to the long-term impacts of your work. And finally, Aaron Martin, who is continuing to move the needle and provide practical applications of how soil health affects human health. She has a powerful desire to uncover how food plays such a significant role in our aging process. Erin is passionate about soil health and exploring how food is medicine. Her work with FreshRx Oklahoma program is successfully helping people struggling with diabetes to source local, regeneratively raised food to address their health concerns. Concerns. Here's Aaron. Well, Aaron, I'd love it if you'd take a minute and just tell us your story, your background, and, and how you got started in, in the field that you're in and what its connection to soil is, and, and just weave that story together for us, how that all works. Sure. It's, it's quite a weaving, actually. And it started when I was a teenager, and I had a first job at a retirement community for 55 and older. 
And you're probably thinking, well, how does that connect to soil health? Well, I will show you exactly. I just, when I was 15, I fell deeply in love with older adults. I loved the wisdom that they had, that they wanted to share in all these incredible stories. I loved the authenticity of older people and how they would say whatever they wanted to say. Uh, they didn't really have a filter and they really had this child childlike a sense and nature and energy about them. And, and that's really all I knew at that age at 15. I just loved hugging up on older people. And I started working in, in the kitchen and I served breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I also was a dishwasher server and I could make $7.25 an hour, which was like a lot of money for a 15 year old. And I loved it so much. It was the only job that I ever remembered being excited to go to work every single day. And I thought, you know, for so many people that hate their jobs in the world, I should probably go with that. And I was looking for a master's program after getting a business management degree. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to be an advocate, but I realized very quickly that being a lawyer is a small percentage of advocacy and a lot of other paperwork. And so I decided to pursue a master's degree and I wanted to do something with older adults, but I didn't know what. And I had moved actually back to California. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I was looking for a higher degree and I just couldn't really find anything that specific. And I was talking to my dad and I said, yeah, I, I've toured these schools and it's just like, you know, not very specific. I don't wanna, really wanna work in hospitals and I don't really wanna do this and that. And he said, well, Aaron, why don't you do gerontology? And I said, dad, that's not even a degree. I don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, we ha had a chuckle about that. And then I went on to google.com and searched gerontology. And of course, the number one school of gerontology in the entire world was 10 miles away from my apartment at the time in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California. It is the only freestanding school of gerontology in the world. Most of the gerontology programs are absorbed by social work schools. Well, USC's gerontology school is the smallest school on campus, but I tell you what, it is an incredibly impactful school that impacts the world and is a leader in aging. And I still had no idea how this would connect to soil health at the time, but I started really learning about aging and longevity and what the misconceptions were about aging and what we could do about it. And at the same time, I became director of social services over seven affordable housing sites for 62 and older. And that's where I saw in real life, older adults on 15 to 32 prescription drugs. I saw what food they had access to. I saw what services the insurance paid for and didn't pay for. And I am a systems thinker and I watch the money and where it flows. And I saw all the systems and I saw the cracks in those systems and I thought, wow, we could be doing so much better. So I ended up starting to studying the blue zones of the world where people age the longest in the world. I actually traveled to a blue zone in Italy with the University of Southern California at the end of my master's program. And I was studying those things and really looking at the lifestyle of these individuals. And one thing that the blue zones had in common was this local food component. And it really blew my mind that there was Himalayan salt on all the tables, that everyone was drinking out of glass bottles. And I was amazed personally because I'm lactose intolerant and have a gluten sensitivity that I was able to eat full pizzas 
with no problem. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. What are we doing in the United States? This is really strange. And I just saw all these people that I had revered as a young teenager and thought, wow, we could be preventing so much unnecessary suffering. And it was actually right after that, that I had a mutual friend who was actually the executive director of Kiss the Ground. I was fascinated by her work. I didn't have a clue how it was connected to mine, but that's when I asked her if I could be enrolled in the soil advocacy program. And I started studying the science of regenerative farming and soil science and understanding deeply the connection of food as medicine, nutrient density, soil health, and how that deeply impacts whether we have the increase or decrease of chronic conditions in our lifespan and how that incredibly impacts not only the individual, but the family unit, the caregivers, the community and our world and the climate and animal health. And it was this huge ripple effect that I had been searching for because there were all these breakdowns, these cracks in these systems that I had really experienced and seen firsthand. And regenerative farming for the first time gave me hope for the future. And that was really just the beginning. <laughs> well, that that is an amazing story and, and how you got to where you are today. And uh, kudos to your dad who recommended gerontology <laughs> to you because I don't even think most people know what gerontology is. So uh, yeah, and the fact that you you happen to be at USC there in the uh, close to uh, the one and only individual uh, college of gerontology that that's uh, that's pretty amazing. And uh, yeah, people don't understand, and oftentimes it's it's good to explain that people think that gerontologists are doctors. I get that a lot, um, and gerontologists are more of it's more of a social work based field, so we're more advocates. But gerontologists go into lots of different. Uh, positions they become policymakers to consult on aging and advocacy for that or they go into running nursing home care skilled nursing facilities and of that nature but I really took the entrepreneurial track and what they teach us is all the processes of aging they teach us the psychological changes of aging the physiological changes of aging and they really combat myths about aging and my physiology class of aging they showed us a big orange carrot and they showed us a small purple carrot. And that was really my first exposure to genetically modified foods. And I didn't know, but that was certainly planting a seed. Hmm. Very interesting. So you mentioned a little bit on the blue zones and how you, you went to a blue zone to study that after, after your completion of your master's there. Talk to us about what is a blue zone? Where are they on earth? And, and there's quite a bit of variation between those blue zones in, in diets, you know, so a lot of people just picked up on what they're eating. You know, sometimes it's a Mediterranean, sometimes it's a all fish, some, you know, depending on that. Um, so talk to us about those blue zones and what impact that had on you and, and maybe what we're missing uh, from learning from those blue zones. There is a lot of different variations and there's also some deep similarities and there's about, you know, seven to eight arguable blue zones in the world where people age the longest. I always say they die on zero prescription drugs and they die of something called old age. That's not seen very often. That was a myth that I learned in my program was that disease is not a natural part of the aging process. People do believe that we get a disease and we die and that that's how it goes. 
And I think we've got to really combat that myth. People also think that pain is a natural part of aging, uh, which it's not. It's definitely something that's become more normal in the way that we live. But blue zones have a lot of different things in common. They're all over the world. One's in Italy, one's in Greece, one's in Costa Rica. We actually have one in Loma Linda, California. Mm -hmm. And people ask about why that is. And it has this concentration of Seventh-day Adventists, the religion. And their religion is predominantly vegetarian. And that may not necessarily be the same thing in all the blue zones, but that's what I found was that they just had a more plant-based diet. Doesn't mean they don't eat meat. They just eat meat more rarely, whether it's once a week or once a month, they don't eat it three times a day and over-processed meat and red meat. They don't do that as much. So yes, there's more Mediterranean diet, but I say just a more plant-based diet, but they also have what is a local seasonal diet. So when you eat local food, it maintains its nutrients. We're here, we're used to getting avocados shipped from Mexico and other produce items shipped from other countries. And what happens is over on an average of three to five days, we're losing 30 to 50% of the nutrients in something when it's shipped. So not only do we want the soil health to be great from the farmers, but We've got to source it locally. So that was the, something that I observed that these blue zones had in common. They also were drinking from natural springs as well. So they're not drinking out of plastic and getting all those toxins. They had, uh, they had this uh, ability to really live intergenerationally. So you have someone who's like 115 living with their daughter who's 95 with their daughter who's 75. And that's what I found in all the blue zones I always say food is this giant ripple effect, and it certainly is. It has an incredible ripple effect on humans' lives and can really change the trajectory of people's lives, even if they're more susceptible through their DNA or their heritage. But what I found was that people have this close connection of community that even in an arguable blue zone in Pennsylvania, they drink and smoke and all those things, but what they all had in common was they had this close, deep connection to themselves, to their families, and to community. And I know, and we know, that isolation absolutely is the killer for older adults, that the moment they're isolated and COVID really hurt us in that way with many people experiencing isolation outside of just being older adults, and that that is what really depletes us. It's beyond healthy food, beyond healthy drinking water is this energetic, spiritual, deep connection to each other. And we are not made to be alone. Of course, we want to be independent to some degree, but even plants, they've done studies that if humans are around those plants and there's positive energy around those plants, they actually would excrete more nutrients and specific nutrients to help those individuals specifically. So I think that there's something that science is a great tool. And then there's things beyond it, uh, that it, that we don't necessarily measure that I think the blue zones really show. And that was incredibly exciting for me, not only to have that information to empower my own clients, but to empower myself. And at the same time, it, it's beautiful to watch your business evolve, but also to reflect that back to yourself. And so I made those changes. I was a daily meat eater, I uh, would eat eggs and bacon every single morning. I had high blood pressure, high cholesterol. 
uh, lots of bouts of depression and anxiety. And it was through changing my diet that I was able to even get to a place where I was conscious enough to start diving deeper into emotional trauma and healing myself. And it was really the food that gave me the platform to start really diving in. Because if you don't have the nutrients you need and you're constantly starving or you're constantly not having access to good food and you're running on 50% capacity of vitamins and minerals, you're not even gonna be able to be to the point to think, okay, how do I go deeper emotionally or do these higher end kind of work and that revolutionized my own life. I was able to come off of all my prescription drugs I was on and get healthier, lose weight um, in a healthy way and a sustainable way and be able to really be an example for the work that I'm promoting. Cause I think that's so important that why would you trust me? Why would you trust me if I'm saying all these things but I'm not doing them myself? And so I do eat local food. I do eat from regenerative farmers. And I take a lot of pride in doing that in, 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 in the integrity of that work. You've got this basis, this understanding of, of what's going on. You, you're coming back to Tulsa. What are, what are some of the steps you've taken in the local community there with food and educating? And, and all of a sudden, you, you started bouncing into us wild and crazy regenerative farming types. And you know, now, <laughs> now you've, you know, you've been at No-Till on the Plains and, and some other um, connections here in, in the greater uh, region. Talk to us about how all that's uh, come together for you and, and what that means for the people that you work with. Absolutely. It's been an incredible journey coming back to Tulsa. I graduated you know, from USC and Los Angeles and California is very saturated with a lot of healthy living understanding and they grow a lot of local produce there. And I really wanted to bring what I learned back to a place where I grew up but also a place that desperately needed the information. Oklahoma has some of the worst health in the nation. It has the worst nursing home care in the nation. It has a lot, a lot of problems and we're called green country. So you would think we could grow some food here. And, you know, Tulsa is also the home for the 1921 race massacre that happened. And so of course, just like a lot of cities were incredibly segregated. And we have a food desert, just like a lot of places in the United States in North Tulsa, where predominantly most black Americans live. And during the pandemic, I was doing, before the pandemic, I was doing lots of public speaking, trying to get some of the word out about this information and going into long-term care places. Well, of course, when the pandemic hit, that wasn't happening. And so I had a lot of downtime and I was connecting to a lot of the food movement at the time. It was interesting because obviously the cracks that we already had in society were incredibly exposed during COVID, one of, one of which being food access and food quality. And so there were all these opportunities to volunteer in food distributions and different things like that. So I kind of got the lay of the land and tried to see who's doing what and what are you know the needs of the community and it was through that time that I got connected to the Tulsa Food Security Council. They had a subcommittee on a Fresh RX program. A Fresh RX program is, has been done many, many times all over the nation. Around 200 Fresh RX programs have been done. And that's essentially where a doctor prescribes fruits and vegetables to people with 
a certain chronic condition. Lots of the FreshRx programs have been done with people with type two diabetes, because I think that's a chronic condition that we've studied enough to know that can be reversed with diet and exercise. And so that's something that they attack. A lot of the FreshRx programs have a lot in common, one of being they attack type two diabetes, but the other one is they do a morphed uh, hybrid version of providing fruits and vegetables, but also with nutrition and cooking classes. Because obviously you can't throw a bunch of produce at someone who is used to going to McDonald's every day and expect them to know what to do with it. So really empowering people, uh, teaching them how to fish in a sense, and being able to really heal themselves with produce. Well, they had a subcommittee here in Tulsa, a doctor in North Tulsa at a clinic called Crossover Health Services. He saw that his patients were compliant in their medications. They were compliant in their doctor's visits, but they still had uncontrolled type two diabetes, which means you have an A1C a hemoglobin level that is over an eight. So if you're below like a 5.6 or so, that's considered you don't have diabetes. If you're between like a 5.6 and like a 6.5, that's kind of pre-diabetic. And then over that is diabetes. And if you're over an eight, you are at extreme risk for a catastrophic health event. So you are more likely to have a stroke, to have kidney failure, to have amputation. Some of these people have already had amputations. And we have, uh, in Oklahoma, the seventh leading cause of death is diabetes. We have five zip codes where most people are dying from diabetes. Well, three out of five of those zip codes are in this North Tulsa area. So lots of people dying from diabetes. This doctor saw the issue. He said, there's something called social determinants of health. It's all the things outside of a clinic setting that we don't affect relationships, emotional health, transportation, food access, you name it, everything outside of a clinic setting, everything that has to do with us as whole people as we are. And he said, you know, we need to do something about this. So he had gone to the Tulsa Food Security Council. They had really built all the nuts and bolts of the program. They had the community partners. They had where we're going to distribute from, where are we going to store food, how the program's going to go, all of these types of things. And I joined the program or the subcommittee and they said, you know, we really need someone who will fundraise for the program because the question is always who's going to pay for it. <laughs> and then who's going to administrate this program and really execute it. And it was at that time that the leader of the Food Security Council, she said, you know, Aaron, I understand this is really your thing. And this is really what you love to do. And and you've raised money before and, and we would like you to do this program. I said, absolutely. Uh, I would love to do it, had some free time <laughs> during the pandemic. And, but now it's really, really become my main focus because what I did was at first they wanted to source the food from maybe Amazon or Walmart or just from the food bank. Well, having this regenerative farming and soil health knowledge, I was like, nope, if I'm going to do this program, if I'm going to fundraise for this program, if I'm going to give my energy to this and really focus and execute this the way it should be, we've got to take this another step. We can affect and revolutionize people's health and people that desperately need it. But what would be a larger ripple effect is if we only source local regenerative produce because it'll be local, so it'll be more nutrient dense. It'll be regenerative, which you know helps every single thing that we can think of. 
So this is what I want to do. If we get a chance to get any produce into anyone's mouth, at least it'll be nutrient dense, right? So they said, Aaron, there's no way. There's no way you're going to be able to do that. There's no way you're going to be able to do that year round. How are you going to do that? And I, I just said, just watch me. <laughs> and uh, uh, I just, I have determination and I, I also don't say things uh, that I'm not going to execute on. And I was determined. And we certainly turned over stones to find these local urban regenerative farmers. And we were able to fundraise to feed 50 people from this clinic for an entire year. Every two weeks, they get a local produce box or bag full of produce. They also get a nutrition class and a cooking class once a month. And we are actually 11 months into that first 12-month program, and we have seen some incredible results. Not only have we built a cohort of about 20 local farmers who provide to this in Tulsa, we haven't had to go outside of Tulsa, and there are some challenges, which I'm happy to talk about. Uh, we've, we've built some in Oklahoma City, and then in kind of the tri-state area, Arkansas, Missouri, but very close within the borders, so it's still very close. Our farmers uh, usually harvest on Monday or Tuesday. We get the food Tuesday and it's distributed Wednesday. So it's a really fast turnaround. Nutrients should be maintained for the most part. And we have had incredible results. We've had 37 out of 50 people have a reduction in their A1C level. And these studies have been done before. They estimate that if you can reduce someone's A1C by one to 2% and take them from uncontrolled diabetes to controlled, you're actually saving the healthcare system 16 to $24,000 per person per year. And out of those 37 people, the average reduction in only six months was 1.98%, which means we've saved the healthcare industry $750,000 per year, if they maintain this, of course, just with 50 people and $150,000. We raised, our budget was 150, we raised 185. We had to buy iPads for everyone because we couldn't do, do in-person cooking classes at the time. So we bought 50 iPads and we were able to do this. And people have, we have some incredible success stories. One, you know, lost 40 pounds, came off of half their medications very happy dating again, you know, like just affecting all of these incredible things. We've had many similar extreme stories. We've had people go from a, I mean, we had people with an A1C of a 14, 14, 12, 10, super, super high, brought them down below an eight in six months. And they just continue to be seeing these results. And it is my belief that we have exponentially increased the potential of this through sourcing regenerative farming. And we've also assisted, I teamed up with Jimmy Emmons and we have assisted four of our farmers to get funded by the NRCS for hoop houses where they were all, you know, it was strange. They all were not approved before, but after a few meetings with us, they were magically all approved. And so we've not only really advocated for the participants and our local community partners and our funders have made this happen and all our teammates, but we, but the farming component has been so beautiful in that the farmers, it creates this whole new market for farmers, for regenerative farmers. If we ask them to grow something new that maybe they didn't know they could sell, they, we guarantee we're going to buy it. 
They know that when they're growing this food that it's being used as food as medicine, it's going to people that desperately need it and it's making this incredible impact. So it's seeing the participants embody this health and wellness is one thing and has really just been a beautiful experience. And then empowering these farmers, these local farmers to rely on a new market, to feel a deeper purpose than they already feel because farmers already do has just been, it's been a mind blowing experience. And we have just fundraised for year two to enroll a hundred new people. And we raised $300,000 in the last four months. And this, I always tell people, I have raised more money. I raised millions of dollars in California. I've served 700 low-income seniors with a team of people. This, but this, that Fresh RX, Oklahoma, it's, it's, it's just everything. It's all the culmination of even my personal experience and understanding and what's going on in the world. And it is shooting a laser beam and creating this massive ripple effect that I couldn't even have imagined and just so grateful to even be a part of it and to support it. Well, I'm thankful you took the time to walk us through all those components <laughs> because it is a complex system. So I was writing some notes here. 37 out of 50 had a reduction in their A1C, a significant reduction, likely able to get rid of their, and I'm sure a portion of those were able to eliminate off the, you know, supplemental insulin pills and those kind of yep. things. But you said something right after that and, and then, then moved on. And I want to point it out. He says, these research studies have been done before. Yeah, it's already been done. Oh, here, here's the bad part. It's been done before. You did it. It happened again. Okay. Why? Why is this not just standard protocol, especially with those dollars you were talking, saving yeah. $16,000 to the healthcare system per person per year, your total program with 50 people looking at saving, you said, I think $700,000 or something. Why don't they just give half of it to you? And, and you'll go ahead and feed the rest of Tulsa and, and then we can keep on going. But I mean, yeah. how do we, okay, how do we make this happen, Aaron? How do we get the doctors, the nurses, the dietitians, the nutritionists, all of the medical blob, if you will, to pay attention to this and tune in to regenerative farming? So I'm, I'm going to take us two directions. One is how do we get the healthcare community plugged in to do it? Step one. Step two is how do we get the agriculturalists, so the farmers, agribusiness distribution plugged into it? So we've got huge silos on, on one side and huge silos on the other side. What's the vision of, of making these happen? So fire away, whichever one you want to take a look at first. I'll bring it all together for you. It's, uh, I, I was asked at the very beginning of this, some of the funders, they said, well, Aaron, why aren't you choosing to do like a three-year pilot instead of a one-year pilot? I said, to be frank with you, we don't need to be doing any pilots. Mm -hmm. This has been done before. It's been proven. This needs to be a permanent part of our healthcare industry. How many times and do we have to relearn something, right? It's I like, know. Quit, quit like, doing a study for the sake of doing a study. Yeah, we know this works. Exactly. And so from the very beginning and, you know, some people were like, oh, Aaron, you haven't even started yet. You know, and I'm like, I don't care. Like this has been done. We need to start thinking like 20 steps ahead. And how can we make a tunnel to this? And how do we get, like you said, the doctors, the dietitians, the nurses, and also the agricultural people on board. And I thought the key was building the bridge between the two. Mm -hmm. 
and that's what I said at No Till on the Plains. I said, just the fact that you have a gerontologist speaking at an agricultural conference, we're getting somewhere, you know. Talk to us on the farmer side. I guess what if, so we have a lot of farmers listening to our podcast here today. And what would you want a farmer to know that, that maybe they, they simply don't know? Okay. I mean, just what, what are some key things that you would, and, and how would you, how would you teach them and, and how would you encourage them to change their behavior, change their thinking or change what they're doing? Yeah, it's a tough one. I said at No-Till on the Plains that just the courage to be learning different techniques that your father might disagree with or your grandfather might disagree with or that you might look different than your neighbors is tough. And the courage to just even explore those things should be validated. And I always say that farmers, that through my understanding, farmers are the true longevity heroes. That without healthy food, we're not going to be doing well. People think we're living longer, but we might, but we're drooling in skilled nursing facilities on 20 prescription drugs. That's not living. And farmers are very concerned with their legacy as a lot of people are, and rightfully so. And this is a legacy that you can certainly leave that we knew a certain way of farming before, that we've been incentivized for a certain style of farming. And now we know more, we understand more. We understand how depleted our soil health has been. And really your asset is your soil. And if you're depleting your asset, that's not really leaving a legacy to the next generation. And it's through these processes, these even very simple things that, you know, they're simple. And then obviously there's, there, it's more to actually implement things. So I don't want to minimize that, but just starting with one practice, cover crops and how that really revolutionizes how much inputs you have to put on. So it really saves you money. And the farmers, I really want to encourage that, give something a shot. Even if you have 200 acres and you just try something on one to 10 acres, you will be able to see within a year the transformation that happens. You'll be able to see that your, your soil infiltrates water and holds water better. You'll be able to see that animals are happier. Your, your crops are better. You'll be able to see these things. You'll be able to see the amount of money that you would save. And in relationship to a Fresh RX program, as we get these laws passed, as we get funding streams for these things, farmers are often asking me when I talk about pressure X, you know, how do I get involved in that? How do I participate? Because it seems very meaningful and it, and it certainly is. That's a great vision. And I really appreciate that. And, and it's amazing how just the slow progression over time, how we've, how we've gotten so far off track, you know, and we don't even notice it. And, and yeah. now there's a major course correction we need to make. To, to bring it back. And there's, there's a lot of vested interests in doing the things the way we're currently doing them. And a lot of uh, minds 
that are vested in doing things the way we're currently doing them. Thanks for listening. We want you to know that you'll find links to all the full episodes of each of these guests in the podcast notes. There's no question that we're still learning about all of the human and soil health relationships, and we remain committed to bringing you guests who contribute to our understanding of these connections. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And they you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.